Welcome, friends and fiends. This is your host, film critic and comedian, Nate Wyckoff. And I'm here to tell you about an exciting giveaway that Warner Brothers Discovery and Colton Classic Films LLC has put together to build your 4K Ultra HD film collection on digital. We are giving away four codes which contain digital 4K Ultra HD versions of Rebel Without a Cause, Maltese Falcon, and Cool Hand Luke. These are films that you absolutely must know as a film buff. You can get this code by being one of the lucky four people we pull from our newsletter list. So go to coltonclassicfilms.com slash newsletter and give us your email and your name and we'll sign you up for the newsletter and we will enter you in the competition. That's all you got to do. So please go ahead and do that. The contest ends on April 30th and we will send out the winning codes on May 1st. Thank you so much for being a listener. And here's your episode of Colton Classic Films Podcast. Welcome to Colton Classic. <laughs> Welcome, friends and fiends, to another episode of Colton Classic. I'm your host, Nate Wyckoff, film critic and comedian. I am excited for today's Western episode. With us, we have Tad Mastriani. How you doing, Tad? Howdy, ladies. Wow. And we also have Amanda Longley. How are you doing, Mandy? It feels like my lucky day. Lucky day. Awesome. Uh, well, there's uh, a lot to talk about and a lot of dead bodies in these movies. So we're going to dive right in. We're going to start with Django Unchained, the 2012-2013 Quentin Tarantino love letter to Spaghetti Westerns. Uh, and then we're going to move on to the original Django film starring Franco Nero from 1966. There's there's a lot to talk about. Um, so let's go to Django Unchained. Now, uh, even though the lead character is named Django and it is called Django Unchained, it is not in any way a reboot or a continuation or a reimagining of the original Django film. This is kind of because Django was so popular when it came out in 1966 that uh, there were... <sighs> arguably 30 to 40 unofficial sequels made thereafter. Um, most of them were just Western films that were retitled. Uh, so no character may be named Django, but it could be something like um, uh, the Django or Fear of Django. It's, there is one of those, but there's things like that. They're just schlocky names that were tagged on to sell tickets. Now, this is sort of playing homage to that as well as the original film and the vibe of Spaghetti Westerns in general. In this epic film, and it truly is kind of epic, it won um, an Academy Award for Best Screenplay and uh, Best Supporting Actor, which I believe, was this one DiCaprio or Christopher, uh, Christopher Waltz? I'd have to check that up. But regardless, excellent performances. Django is played by Jamie Foxx, and he is a slave who is being, uh, who's been branded with an R for being a runaway when he tried to run away with his uh, wife, who was also a slave. They were both branded beaten and then sold at the Greenville uh, slave trade auction. I don't know exactly when this takes place, uh, but it is clearly before the Civil War, so sometime in the 1800s, and it takes place in the South. Now, while Django is separated from his wife, he's been sold uh, to someone different, and he is being uh, led through the wilderness by two nasty slavers and uh, along with several other slaves. Along comes Christopher Waltz's character, Dr. Schultz, in his dentist wagon. Well, he wants to buy Django. He's looking specifically for Django. The uh, 
two nasty slavers don't like it because Christopher Waltz, presumably, is German, and it's presumably why they don't like him. But they also don't like him because they are uh, super asshole slavers, as we will see a lot of in this movie. Uh, he shoots one of them, shoots the other one's horse, which falls and breaks the guy's leg. And then he pays for Django, makes a bill of sale, and essentially gives the other slaves the freedom to kill their slaver and head north. So we get right off of the bat that although he has his own motives, Dr. Schultz seems to be a pretty stand-up guy. Uh, and eventually Django warms up to him and he finds out that he is needed by Dr. Schultz to help pinpoint three brothers who have a bounty on their head. Yes, Dr. Schultz is a dentist turned bounty hunter, uh, a lot like uh, real life Doc Holliday, I believe, uh, if, I, if I remember my, my Western history well enough, was a dentist turned gunslinger. Dr. Schultz is uh, going to give Django his freedom once he helps him pinpoint these three brothers uh, who are wanted dead or alive. They will certainly be dead. Django does this and then Dr. Schultz learns that uh, Django's love was raised by a German couple who taught her German and named her Brunhilde. Well, this kind of tips the scale for him, and he can no longer let Django go to Mississippi and try to track down his wife, because even though he's a free man, Mississippi at this time was not okay if you were a Black person. Uh, you, you, it's pretty much guaranteed that you would be uh, sent back to slavery. So... He says, we will go to Greenville together after the winter, after I've trained you and we've gotten a lot of money, which we'll split uh, with a certain, certain percentage, lesser percentage going to Django. He does this. They become a great team. They go to Greenville. They find out that uh, Brunhilde, uh, also known as Hildy, has been sold to Calvin Candy, the Candyland plantation owner, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. There are so many memes of him on the internet from this movie. He does a fantastic job being a truly terrifying character. Quentin Tarantino, who of course, uh, not only directed this, but wrote the script. He says that uh, Calvin Candy is the only character of his that he's ever written that he truly loathes. Uh, and it's pretty obvious to see why. He's uh, an evil character. I think that there are some other characters that I, I, would, I would argue Christopher Waltz's character from Inglorious Bastards later is, is also loathworthy. But <clears throat> they go to Candy Lane. And the idea is, is that they can't just outright ask to buy uh, Brunhilde because she probably wouldn't, isn't worth very much. And he's not even going to entertain the idea. So they have to plan to make a big sale and then have Brunhilde thrown in. And then instead of actually paying for the big sale, which they have to get, uh, you know, their lawyers involved on, they'll just then leave with Brunhilde. Uh, this kind of works. Uh, because they go in and they ingratiate themselves to Calvin Candy uh, because he likes having Mandingo fights where um, black slaves are pitted in death matches together. And so they pretend they want to buy one of his top fighters. And they pretend that Django is uh, uh, a Mandingo, essentially a, a black slaver who is, of course, understandably very hated by uh, black slaves because he is turned on his own uh, his own cultural heritage. So he has to play this extra evil character in order to get close to Brunhilde. Everything's going fine until the deal is struck and they are at uh, Candyland and Steven, 
played by Samuel Jackson, the elderly sort of Uncle Remus from Song of the South type character, but with a Quentin Tarantino twist, is um, the elderly uh, runner of the house for Calvin. And he sees that something is going on between Brunhilde and Django. And he, of course, doesn't trust Django at all because he's acting like a white person, but he's not a white person, which uh, for someone like Stephen, who has this sort of, he's an interesting character we'll talk about, but he clearly has this ingrained sense of, of, of self-loathing and, and that the, he's exploitating his fellow black people in this film as the head house slave. Uh, he blows the whistle to Calvin that this is a scam. And uh, basically Calvin flips out in a crazy scene where uh, we'll talk about in a second. And, uh, says, if you want her, uh, then I will sell her for the $12,000 that you promised for a fighting slave. And uh, if you don't, that's fine, but I'm going to kill her because she's mine property and I can do that. So they pay the $12,000. Everything seems like it's still going to work out, although not as well. And then Calvin will not let them go until Dr. Schultz shakes his hand in agreement. Dr. Schultz just can't do this. He can't handle it. So he pulls the old Desperado uh, card trick gun up the sleeve and shoots Calvin. Well, a bloody gunfight fight ensues in which Dr. Schultz is killed and Django's captured. He eventually breaks free again, goes back, wreaks bloody revenge on the entire family and gets his Brunhilde and they sort of have a ride off into the, into the night moment. It sounds like a lot because it is a lot. This is a two hour and 45 minute movie, which was actually longer in the original script. Um, it was actually discussed to break it into two films like uh, Tarantino did with Kill Bill one and two, but he decided against that. Um, and he actually removed some of the really graphic um, slave violence uh, because he there's plenty in there um, to, to make to turn your stomach. But he was afraid that it would actually traumatize the audience more than that would allow them to. Uh, still follow the story and see the progression of these characters yeah yeah so <clears throat> all right we're gonna we're gonna start off with with asking our beloved uh i personally saw this in theaters but i'm gonna ask you guys uh have you seen this before tad and now that you have seen it uh for the first or is it second time what did you think i did see this movie um I don't even honestly remember when I saw it, but I do distinctly remember lots of scenes from this movie. I also remember tons of memes from this movie. Um, it was just as enjoyable the second time as the first time. This is a Tarantino film. So Tarantino is a master of not only, as you point out, he makes love letters to genres and he puts a great amount of care into getting that style down, but he also manages to take very serious graphic topics and appropriately breaking it up with the proper amount of humor not the marvel this is a, a way too, too way too over the top amount of humor the scene in the middle of the movie where all the the essential clan clans people are yep. are are gathering up and arguing over the fact that they can't see through their fucking hoods is one Jonah of the Hill being one of them yes yeah, as baghead number two this is a, one of the best scenes in the entire movie um, because it just, it's one of those things like, like, uh, oh God, ultimate fight in Hitler. There is nothing that helps you, um, win over these sort of people than making a laughing stock out of them. 
Yeah, it's it's a Donald Trump syndrome altogether. It's like you can't hurt them by showing how terrible they are because they don't they don't believe that what they're doing is terrible. That's what makes them terrible. But you can hurt them by showing how ridiculously comical they are. Um, and it's a great the, the scene you're talking about. It's great because it literally everything stops. So you can see how insane this group of people is as they're arguing amongst themselves like, quote unquote, normal people that the hoods that so-and-so's wife made are hard to see through. And then he gets offended and he is like the only one to survive, one of the only ones to survive because he leaves because he's yeah. like, forget it. I'm never doing anything for you guys again and rides away. Um, and then of course they, they're they wonderfully blown up by the uh, ingenious Dr. Schultz who's uh, packed their wagon full of TNT and is set up on the hill and they're waiting for them uh, because they, they of course killed three runaway criminals it's interesting too that bounty hunting is sort of um we of course like nowadays you still have bounty hunters legally uh things like dog the bounty hunter like anyone can become a bounty hunter there are bounties put out by the state and government of the united states and you can collect them uh i don't citizens are not most likely going to find too many dead or alive ones but there's a lot of things ranging from you know um serious crimes like murder and kidnapping to you know not paying your your child support which is of course serious but it's it's not these days a killing offense in most cases um it just makes you a slime ball so it's interesting to see this because this is true um in the quote you know wild westy times of uh, our country there were bounty hunters and there were people who killed them of course this is a little pulpy about it. it's a little insane in some ways but this this really happened and uh and that's fascinating yeah it does romanticize it a bit i mean i mean it's it would be it would be boring if nothing else um because you'd be hunting down i mean it does sort of give you the idea of how impossible it would be to find someone and how people could change their identity with a flip of a you know a tip of the hat kind of thing because there's no internet there's no real phones um you know your, your wanted posters or drawings uh, a varying quality. If you go look up online, uh, historic, like real uh, wanted ads and things, some of the drawings are great. Some of them are hilarious. I'm like, <laughs> I, I don't know what far side cartoon robbed this bank, but I don't think you're going to find them. So that was interesting. Mandy, had you seen this film before? I had seen Django Unchained before. Uh, like Tad, I can't remember the exact time or circumstances in which I saw it. Um, I would say that I'm a casual enthusiast of Quentin Tarantino films. I've definitely not seen them all. Like I'm not a Greg, haven't gone through the whole catalog, but I'm generally really excited uh, about Tarantino's films, um, especially uh, like, I don't know, I guess like the more out there ones, except that they're all really out there. So <laughs> like, I'm thinking like, um, what was it the 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 death car one that he did that death proof death was part of the grindhouse uh double feature with uh yeah robert rodriguez's yeah planet terror like i like that maybe more than like the inglorious bastards ends of things but um like this one felt kind of like in between um perhaps because it's a little bit further removed in history um, I will admit that, like, since I've seen it once before, I knew there were certain scenes that I didn't want to watch a second time, which I skipped over, um, specifically uh, the dogs, um, yep. dog attack one. I could not 
bring myself to watch that one again. And I know that that was part of Quentin Tino's purpose in the extreme violence yep. and um, portrayal, uh, which I know that there was a lot of um, different opinions about it, what he included um, and how historically accurate it may or may not have been. Um, and I know that like, I, like in interviews that I read um, from his quotes is like he was maybe less worried about the specific perfect accuracy of it and more with um, starting the conversation. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, and I think that's a valid uh, thing to bring up too is he does, like you said, he's not, picking any particular time of the terrible acts of slavery that uh, uh, most of the, us on the panel's ancestors have perpetrated on or have perpetrated on uh, uh, people of color. But um, he sort of does what a lot of stage play, historical stage plays do, which is he condenses things for the sake of, um, of getting it all in one story. Um, and we can guarantee that the things that occurred in this and much worse did happen in real life. Did they happen at once to one person in this group? Well, no, it's a fictional story and he definitely condensed and moved around and swapped things. But I mean, there, you do get some terrible things uh, in this film, of course, like, you know, metal face masks, the horrible hoods and, and hooks around the neck that slaves were forced to wear during transport and just really awful things. Um, and then, as you mentioned, you mentioned the uh, the dog scene, which is infamous, and actually, I guess, was much longer and much more graphic. Uh, and it's pretty graphic as it is, but he really gives you snips and bits and pieces just enough to turn your stomach and, and make you really appalled. It's a scene where uh, a, a the Django and Dr. Schultz are traveling with Calvin Candy to Candyland uh, to, to get their bargain struck, and they come across some of these like disgustingly vulgar representations of backwoods white people um who are unfortunately we we live through the donald trump presidency we know that there are people just like this right now but who are uh using dogs and they've cornered a, a runaway slave who is a fighter who, who's won two fights and, and or three fights and, and just can't do it anymore and tried to escape and uh as sort of a punishment to Django for speaking up uh, he has uh, the dogs kill the slave on the spot. And, and Dr. Schultz especially is, is truly horrified. Um, I think it's interesting to note too, Dr. Schultz's character is a bounty hunter and, and he kills people really without batting an eye, including in one case when he's training Django, uh, encouraging Django to shoot a man who's plowing a field with his son. And uh, he doesn't, he, he has a great deal of empathy for people of color in this movie um, and not so much for, for white people like himself. And we don't totally know, we don't really know his backstory at all, except that he was a dentist at one point in time. He's certainly not a normal character, um, but we see that he cannot stand graphic violence, but we don't know if it's only towards people of color uh, and we don't know the reason for that. I mean, we can assume a lot of things. We could presume that he's seen slavery uh, in, the, in the Americas, which uh, even at this time was, was much less um, in Europe. Uh, this, you know, Europe certainly had its share of slavery, uh, but America held on to it longer uh, and to harrowing effect. And so we don't know if it's a, a, a cultural thing or if he has, he seems to actually have something against uh, slavery, 
which is nice because we get that sense from, because hopefully those of us sitting in the audience also have something against slavery because it is really terrible. And Jamie Foxx does a great job as Django, essentially usurping the lead role from Dr. Schultz because Dr. Schultz is really the lead character for a good chunk of this film. Um, but then we get more and more Django as he becomes comfortable with Dr. Schultz um, because in the beginning, he is not comfortable with Dr. Schultz. I mean, who would be? He's a, a black slave who is purchased by this white man. Um, and as the time goes on, he becomes more assertive. And we see that he really has this personality because, of course, he's a person. But the white people around him are not, with the exception of Dr. Schultz, are not used to someone actually presenting themselves and being expected to be treated like a person. Uh, we get this scene when they finally reach Candyland when Samuel Jackson, who I think does a phenomenal job as the um, sort of crippled, uh, palsied Stephen, um, with what he, he looks very much like if anybody um, watched the uh, animated version of the Boondocks, uh, he looks so much like Grandpa in that. And that's very, if Samuel Jackson couldn't play that role. Looks like Grandpa talks like Uncle Ruckus. Yes, it is. It is really great. Um, and when he comes out and sees Django for the first time, his like, his, his reluctance to accept that Django is being treated like a guest, like a white person, essentially, is, is fascinating because it's not just that, it's not that he actually can't believe it. It's that he's using this disbelief to register his disgust um, in a way that his, his master will accept socially. Um, and that's why this film is so brilliant to me is that there are nuances between every scene and every character interaction in this film. Um, we see it again later, really interestingly, between Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Calvin Candy, who is the boss, right? He's the, he's the one who's in control of everything, so we'd think. Um, and when he is summoned, essentially, which is a very unmaster-like thing, into the parlor, uh, because Steven has said there's something, you know, I need, I, I need you to help with something. And it's to reveal that he's having the wool pulled over his eyes. Steven is different, right? He pours himself a glass of, I don't know if it's brandy or scotch um, as he's sitting there. And then after he gives DiCaprio's character the information and he can see that it's sinking in, his, his response to the silence as Calvin is mulling this over is, thank you, Steven, you're welcome, Calvin, which is just like, and that's the only scene we get of him being that person, right? The, the runner of the house. Um, and yet it puts all of his interactions with the rest of the house servants, with Calvin and into a brand new perspective. Um, and it makes him such a disturbing character because we, and especially like, I think I can speak for all of us in this case because all three of us are Caucasian, is we don't know what to think because he's a black person who's a slave but he's also exploiting other black people. He is the character that Django is pretending to be, in essence, to get on uh, the good side of Calvin and to, to get back his wife. Um, and he cer Stephen certainly suffers for it in the end. He, he does get his comeuppance. Um, but it's just, it's such an, this movie has so many moments where uh, I think, especially as white people, we are forced to, to see white participation in 
uh, what is the greatest tragedy in our modern time, right? The, the, uh, the act of slavery and the after effects of slavery. And so it's interesting that in a very pulp methodology in this spaghetti Western, Tarantino, I think manages to do a pretty solid job of pointing out like, you can't forget this. And if you feel a little guilty, well, yeah, it's, it's still happening to a different extent. It's a, it's a insidious racism that permeates our culture. And even now watching this, you know, during Black Lives Matter, um, right now, after we've had President Trump leaving office, like the goon he is, and, and a, a, a black biracial woman coming as vice president, just all these things, and, and police brutality against people of color, I took this movie differently than I had when I first saw it. Um, I think that it's certain things really stuck out, like the way that Django is treated over and over again, and how some of the white characters who uh, believe in and accept slavery, more probably because they're subjugating people than because they actually believe there is some inherent difference between black people and white people, is when they're one-on-one -on -one with him, they speak and act differently than when they are in a social group. For example, um, I forget his name. He's the one that is going to castrate in one scene the, um, the strung up Django. He, he, he was in Shanghai uh, noon as well. He almost always plays a, uh, a cattle rustler or a train robber. Uh, he's a great actor. Um, but- <clears throat> Like Django call him Moonlight. So Moonlight, yeah. yeah, that's right. Know. He um, about walking with him at after dark. Yeah, we got. That's right. You want to walk? He he does like. <laughs> I don't even. It's like when he's alone with Django, and he's going to, and there's this weird sexual energy that they put into that scene. But um, he speaks to him like a person, a person who is at his mercy, but a person, not a slave. And it's so strange because. It's, it's just this subtle way that Tarantino is like, they knew they were people. Mm. Like it's, it's just, and, and I think that it breaks that argument that has been put forward so long that we hear about all sorts of things in our culture, which is, well, it was a different time. Um, and to some extent, we've all, uh, at least I think all of us who are, are white, I can't speak for anyone else, but have said, okay, well, that makes sense. Especially when you're growing up, you know, when your grand, great grandparents or your grandparents say something that's off the cuff racist, well, they're from a different time. But then Tarantino takes plenty of opportunities in this film to be like, that's irrelevant. Um, wrong is wrong is wrong is wrong. When there's a victim, something that's wrong is always wrong. Uh, and slavery, of course, is, is, it is never, in no way could it ever be a victimless crime. Um, so I think there's a lot of little nuances that, that do that. Now, if you had one standout scene, Mandy, what would it be? Oh, wow. There's like so much. Um, uh, I guess on that similar theme to what you were just talking about is um, when Django shows up to the first plantation that they're going to, uh, where they're going to uh, find the three brothers and uh, the plantation owner tells one of the other slaves to give Django like a tour. He's like, oh, go show him all the pretty things. And the slave's like, but I need context. Like, how am I supposed to treat him? Um, he's like, oh, like a guess. He's like, so I'm supposed to treat him like he's white? 
And he's like, no, 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 don't do that. And she's like, but I don't understand. Like, how am I supposed to treat him? And it was just like very clearly put uh, the plantation owner in kind of a, a difficult spot. He came up with like a some some way for her to think about it that worked. Um, they don't fully explain it, but I'm assuming it was either like a mixed race person that he was talking about or someone that had like um, like a mental deficiency of some mm-hmm. sort. Um, she's like, oh yeah, we'll treat treat him like like that, like different than me, but like different than slaves. Or like a and child, like, right? Like, like a, a poor or like child. A child. Or like a poor child or white trash or something. Like like a, uh, yeah. and it's sort of, and I, there's. But, yeah, but that always stands out to me. Like mm-hmm. the second time watching, I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, I remember this really having a big impact the first time I saw it too. Um, yeah, and that's Don Johnson, by the way, who plays Big Daddy, um, who's, who's the one telling him to do that. Um, telling her to do that, and which what's and and I think that Tarantino's very aware in that scene, um, because you know he's read it, we've all read it, uh, Huck Finn and Mark Twain's work, where it, it's sort of the, the the strongest realization in that film as a reader and for characters is when Huck Finn realizes that oh, uh, Jim's no different than me. Like Jim's a person. And not only is he a person, then he realizes he's an adult because he is the same level, if not lower, than a child. And so when he's treated like a child, Huck sees, oh yeah, he's like me. And then when he becomes a free man, and actually before that, when he essentially, you know, saves them and all these things, he's like, oh, he's, he's wiser, better. He's an adult. And I'm a child. And so it's like this double realization that builds. And so when Don Johnson's character of Big Daddy says that, you know, it's like, no, I'm not like a white person. Like, remember that, you remember that boy, whatever that kid, they don't say boy because they would be a black person. Um, it's, it's yeah, that was a very good scene. Um, I also my, mentioned, oh, sorry. Yeah, I was gonna say my other favorite one is when Steven is telling Django why he's being sent to the labor camp. And he's like, it's because I'm in charge. Like, yeah. These, these people want to just physically torture you. They want to do all kinds of stuff to your private parts. Like, I don't understand that. Like, white people are weird. But, like, I just kept, like, subtly pushing, like, this kind of fate worse than death. And guess what they're doing to you? They're doing what I told them to do. Like, I'm the one. I actually have the power. I'm steering the ship. Like, yeah, I'm doing this to you, not And that's them. a really crazy scene because it ties back the the probably the most famous scene critically in this film is when uh DiCaprio as Calvin is revealing over over time to uh Dr. Schultz and Django that he knows their scheme and that he's not going to get his money or he wasn't going to now he is uh and he does it in this this long drawn scene where first he brings out a human skull and a hacksaw and he cuts open the back and he's like this is the this is the slave who raised my grandfather, my father, and until he died, me. And you can see these, and he points out these divots. He's doing phrenology. He's like, these divots in the skull show that he was subservient. This is a black person's skull. And like, he's like, me, I would have them over here. And like, it's just disgusting, right? And then he, of course, um, when Dr. Schultz tries to get up, someone shows up behind them with a shotgun and uh, Calvin slams this glass on the table and throws the hammer down or whatever. And in that scene during the take that they used, uh, 
a piece of glass that had shattered from his glass gets stuck in his hand as he slams it down and he keeps playing the scene and they end up using uh, the blood and later have to do, you know, they have to add blood for continuity. He smears it at some point over Carrie Washington's face. Carrie Washington, by the way, beautiful, talented actress, scandal, the whole deal. She plays um, Brumhilda. Uh, She's got a terrifying scene where when they arrive, she's in the hot box, which is a real thing. Military used this as well. and I'm sure in some places they're still in use. It's a torture device where people are locked in a metal box in the sun uh, and essentially cook for a while. And she's in there and they pull her out naked and douse her with water. And it's just a terrifying scene. It's really uncomfortable. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> and, and she does a great job. And she really, it's interesting. She doesn't, I, I feel like there's plenty of argument that could be made that she doesn't have much of a role uh, and women in general don't in this film. Um, but I also think that you can make the argument that she's not a weak character. She is a victim. Um, and when they blow up the, when Django gets his revenge and they blow up uh, Candyland, um, her reaction is priceless. She's giddy. She claps. Like it's a, it's a fantastic fireworks display. Like it's just this, and you're like, yes, this is, this is what you would want to feel after revenge. Who knows if this is actually what would happen. I mean, the, the trauma that people in this situation would experience is insane. But um, I also wanna mention Walter Goggins is the name of uh, Moonlight. Uh, he, he's really great. I mean, he was he's also in The Hateful Eight. He was played stands in uh, Robert Rodriguez's produced film Predators, uh, which in my opinion was the last great Predator film thus far. Now, Frank Nero, Franco Nero, who played the original Django, which we'll get to, uh, is also in this for a guest spot. He plays uh, one of the, he plays a, a, another man who has another uh, black fighter who gets bested and killed and he gets disgusted. Uh, and he's got a cute little scene though with Jamie Foxx where he's like, what's your name? And he's like, Django, can you spell it? And he spells like DJ, the D is silent. He's like, I know. And he gets up and walks away. Um, there was, I mean, it was more than a nod. Um, but I also think that it, it could be that overt because most people, I would hazard to say, uh, especially in our age group in our 30s, wouldn't know the original Django film unless you're like us and weird movie people. Um, so Tarantino having that in there was, of course, a very nice nod to the origin of the Django mythos and um, the success of Spaghetti Westerns. Tad, uh, what is, when you watched this, this time around, were there any scenes that stood out to you that you didn't remember? Because I too remembered quite a few standout scenes before I watched it again. This one, the scene that stuck out to me and made me think and almost made me kind of tune out from the movie was the scene when they're on the hill and Django is kind of mulling over whether he's going to shoot the guy and and Schultz is talking about like let here let, let me let me show you something and that kind of like I started thinking about it and thinking maybe this is as much of Schultz's backstory as we're gonna get because I felt and it's just me in my own head thinking that that maybe that's that's the one of the reasons why he's doing what he's doing is it could be that old you know Punisher style my my wife and child were murdered and this guy is actually this, this guy might have actually started being a bounty hunter specifically to go after people who killed his family and then once it was done he's like okay i got nothing better to do i guess i'll take care of this guy and make him a, and uh, mentor him a little while because 
it's pretty hardcore to shoot a man right in front of his child. But I can see someone who's been through that trauma going, you know what? The world is a is a brutal place and they're not going to show you any quarter. So don't give any uh, gun this guy down and uh, let's collect our money and let's go find your wife because mine's dead. That's that's what was running through my head for about 15 good goddamn minutes after that scene. And it's stuck with me ever since. Yeah, I think that that's a good um, that's a good note. And what it, what's interesting is because Dr. Schultz, that certainly could be. And I think the first time watching this, we always think we're going to get more of his backstory because he's such an oddball character. Um, but what happened, it's like he that could be it or he could literally be disgusted with humanity um, and and see because especially this 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 overarching oppressive uh, higher class, you know, higher in quotation marks um, of people that are subjugating everyone else because, and that would sort of explain his, you know, his um, emotional response to seeing people of color enslaved and his disgust at seeing anyone else who is complicit uh, or uh, simply ignoring the plight of these people. Um, it's just, it's fascinating. And that scene is interesting too, because it made me think back to the Kill Bill um, duology where uh, uh, the bride, Uma Thurman's character, uh, kills one of her former teammates in front of her daughter yeah. and looks at her and says, if you grow up and you're still torn up about it, come, come find me, um, which uh, she may do uh, in Kill Bill 3, which has been announced. So that's the- Oh, it has been finally? It's been announced. There's been no information on it. Um, also, I'll throw this out there. There's been rumors, uh, and Tarantino said at one point that he would love it, uh, and it is listed on IMDb, but it's not, I don't think any sort of real production has happened. Um, but there, there's been talk of a Django Zorro crossover, um, and it would be interesting. Uh, Tarantino actually said that he would love it if they could get Antonio Banderas to do. I was going to say, there's no other option, which means it, they'd probably pull Rodriguez into. It will, and certainly, who wouldn't? Um, so yeah, that would be that would be fascinating. Um, but th there, if you go look it up, you can see listed writers and things. I'm going to be honest. I'm a, of course I would be very interested to see it, but without Tarantino writing the script, I would be a little less interested. Or Rodriguez, somebody who has those chops. But give people chances. Always give new screenwriters, different screenwriters chances. We, you know, we're all new at some point, but it would be really great if, if you would pen that, if it actually happened. I'm skeptical, but it would be nice. So let's move in. I think we can all agree. I mean, this is an award-winning film. More people than just Tarantino fans or cult fans uh, or Western fans really enjoyed this movie and saw value in it. Um, I also want to say you could, there are lots of arguments. If you go online, you look for essays, uh, blog posts, things about the questionable nature of uh, a white middle-class or upper-class person doing a film centered on some sort of black experience. Um, I think that while we can do it, we need to be aware that there is guaranteed going to be some, a certain level of misinformation and misunderstanding because the people, when you write, and this is just a writer thing, when you write characters that you don't know intimately as part of yourself, um, you're gonna get some of it wrong. And it's, in some respects, it's the nature of the beast because you're making things up and you want to make things interesting. And some things you find interesting may or may not have come from, you know, actual experiences. Uh, and other times it's probably just missed uh, and, and it's just wrong. I don't, 
I didn't see any, but again, I am essentially Quentin Tarantino's perspective. I am a white person who loves old movies and old movies inherent, like inherently have racial and social and gender biases that uh, we need to be aware of. So it's certainly, I'm sure that there are people who take umbrage with many aspects of this film. And I'm sure that many of them have ground to stand on and can make that argument. So check that stuff out. And especially if you see this movie, at, which I urge you to do, and you like it, give it a go. There's a lot to unpart, uh, unpack in here and parse out. So, Mandy, would you recommend Django Unchained uh, and to whom? I would. And I didn't say like, oh, Tarantino fans, but you've probably already seen it. So, <laughs> um, I don't know. Other people who like weird uh, movies with like kind of like uh, eh, drummed up aesthetics, like so this there's a very specific look to how Tarantino does um, violence and gunshots and blood splatter. It's like very over the top, very stylized, almost comic book like, but obviously um, very like realistic at the same time. Uh, they're like statement pieces. And if you want to see someone make a statement, then I would say this is a good one to check out. Um, and it's a little bit, I guess more serious kind of um, than say Kill Bill um, or Death Proof that we mentioned. So yeah, I liked it. Excellent points. Um, I think too, we didn't, I didn't even mention um, the, the gunplay and battles in this. And there, as you said, it is very stylized. And I have to say, I think it's probably the most excellent and over the top um, squibs and blood packs exploding in this film um from the first you know short gun play scene where uh dr schultz kills one of the slavers and shoots the other's horse the blood is ridiculous it is it is massive but it's also incredibly well done um it's not i don't know if it was augmented with some 3d effects i would hazard to say no but it is quite large and and flowering so it's very possible that it was uh, but it does not look cheap. It looks like a practical effect and it looks really good. And we really don't get, they don't use it. Uh, Terrence doesn't use it in every instance. Sometimes he plays it very realistic, especially with, in cases of uh, violence against, um, uh, say, slaves, for example, when it's a more serious subject than just like a gunplay scene that we would see in any number of, of Westerns from the 50s on. So, or even before that. So I think it's, I think it's interesting to, to also look at when he uses those effects um, as well as recognizing that they're pretty great. And they're also, uh, there, is, there is really only one massive gun battle in this film and it is not even at the actual climax. It's sort of a, a pre-climax, um, but it is pretty fantastic. Tad, who would you recommend Django to and why? It's a great family film. I watched it with uh, <laughs> uh, No, really. Um, Tarantino has really matured and that's an interesting statement coming from me but um, he was essentially the king of mainstream cult films for a pretty long while and at some point Tarantino just made films that were just released and people enjoyed them without going it's a Tarantino film he's got a particular style you can tell in every movie he's in um, there is a very distinct Tarantino style but this is almost every movie he makes especially in the past decade, you can just sit down and watch it and enjoy it for what it is. 
you don't have to be a fan of Tarantino to watch it. This is one of those I would recommend to anybody that isn't necessarily too squeamish to watch a movie that has um, animal violence, uh, violence against everybody ever. Uh, so, yeah. and, and copious amounts of violence. Like if you can handle the the crazy 88 fight in Kill Bill, this one is, you'll, you'll be fine. Yeah. And I know th- this is one of the films that is a contemporary film. No animals were harmed in the making of this film, uh, specifically horses. And that is something that those of us who watch a lot of uh, either Westerns or sword and sandal films, especially those made uh, in Italy and, and uh, Spain and things where there are lots of horses, we can't always say that. There are definitely stunts that look heavily unsafe uh, for, for the animals. And, uh, and so that's always a little painful uh, when we come across those. But uh, it is part of his film historically and so it's nice that that especially people like tarantino who i think a lot of people who don't like his films are like oh it's bloody it's just exploitative trash um and like well he spends the money to make a film actually legal and fun and appropriate and there we go um i will recommend this film as well to anyone especially tarantino fans but also recommend it to western fans um it's different the music choices there is everything from the original django theme uh from the original 1966 django to um fitting music that, that sounds like that sort of takes on that as well as hip-hop songs as well as sort of indie rock song is is really wild but it's shocking how well it matches the vibe of the movie and tarantino does not shy away from sort of the goofier moments the pulp moments of of spaghetti western films uh that were clearly meant to entertain rather than than send a message he i think he successfully does both i also want to give a shout out to um one of the uh takes of django as well 2007's sukiyaki western django uh that is it's a japanese film it's directed and written by cult legend kashimike uh, and it's also written uh, by Masa Nakamura. And to Quentin Tarantino is actually in this film. He has a small part. And uh, it's, it's wild. Uh, it, it'd be a great double feature with this if you can't track down uh, the original Django easily. Although it has been re-released on Blu-ray and it is stunning. So we are going to take a break on that. And when we come back, we're going to dive into the original, the progenitor Django 1966. Hey, cult and classic crew, friends and fiends of the pod, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Nate, I don't have any money, and if I did, I'd be spending it on cool things like buttons and custom trading cards and zines that are unique and made each week by the cult and classic podcast family. And guess what? You can do both of those things at once. You can support cultandclassicpodcast.com and get awesome swag like buttons and custom trading cards that are printed on actual trading card stock by actual trading card printers and autographed by the artist and also zines like classic issues of rearted with comics and illustrations and interviews as well as brand new cult and classic podcast family publications that uh, are brand new so you'll get them first in line these are awesome awesome things that you can get just by joining our patreon at patreon.com slash cult and classic podcast for as little as a dollar a month you can get videos of our episodes you can see all our lovely shining faces as well as exclusive content like extra episodes film reviews book reviews and things like commentary by us on our short films which you'll also be able to see if you want to pay a little more five dollars a month per se us then you get an awesome 
autographed custom trading card. These are official printed uh, at the same place that prints every other trading card you've ever bought and they're autographed by the artist. These are exclusively for Colton Classic Podcast and inspired by our episodes. They, you can't get them anywhere else except through us. Only $5 a month, you get it shipped right to you. Shipping is free. If you pay $10 a month, if you are a true drinker of the Kool-Aid for ColtonClassicPodcast.com, then you will get uh, the trading card, access to all of the content that is exclusive to Patreon members, and you will get a brand new zine every month, whether it's a classic uh, copy of rearded zine uh, with interviews, comics, art, all sorts of cool stuff, or brand new Colton Classic Podcast family publications. Those will get sent straight to your door. Plus, there's usually extras like pins, stickers, all sorts of cool stuff. So you're doing two great things. You are spending money on awesome swag and you're supporting Colton Classic Podcast. I know it's tough right now in the pandemic. If you can do it, join us at Colton Classic Podcast Patreon. If you can't, why don't you recommend it to a friend? We all have those rich friends and uh, they can spread it around a little more. I'm just gonna say it, all right? Thank you so much. And uh, as always, Colton Classic Podcast loves you. And we are back to talk about Django with Franco Nero from 1966. This is the original Django film. Now, I, I've seen some people talk about this film as though it's the original Spaghetti Western. It is not. This is not the original Spaghetti Western. There were plenty before, um, but this one's popularity was very high uh, and still is. Um, it's, was, it was made to compete with... Um, Americans, Sergio Leone's uh, the, the Dollars trilogy um, uh, and Once Upon a Time in the West, that sort of thing, uh, which were really popular in the United States and are still considered pretty great films. This was done with less budget, uh, a less experienced director and writer, Sergio Corbucci. Uh, also, the story was uh, written by Bruno Corbucci with him. And uh, there are Many other people involved on the screenplay, including Franco Rossetti, Piero Viveretti. Boy, my Italian is bad. Uh, and then, of course, there's an English version as well, which was written by Jeffrey Copleston. Now, for people familiar with this film, for those purposes, we watched the uh, American cut with the American dub. The American dub is notoriously not great. It's also not the worst um, especially for those of us who went through the, the 80s and 90s anime uh, dubbing. Oh, no. um, yeah, which, which are all of us on this panel. Uh, we've heard some horrendous dubs and some horrendous script changes. This one I don't think is that bad, but you certainly can find this film with the original Italian language and the subtitles, which is uh, arguably better. Um, especially, I think, in Franco Nero's part, because I don't think his lines were read with a lot of power they're they're very dry whereas for example the villains characters um are are better uh in their readings so that's sort of unfortunate um especially i think uh, eduardo fiardo's uh he plays uh, the major who is sort of the ultimate villain in this he is uh very almost everyone in here has made many films in italy um i think probably uh fiardo's at least the one I knew him from was the murder mansion from 1972. He plays Mr. Tremont. So 
but he's been in lots of stuff. People might recognize him. And as I said, Sergio Carucci directed this. He This was actually considered part of what would later be known as his Mud Trilogy or Mud and Blood Trilogy. And it's pretty, they're pretty great. Um, as far, if you like spaghetti Western films, and yes, they're called spaghetti Westerns because they're Westerns made in Italy. So it's, who knows, it might've intended as a demeaning term, but it's been sort of um, adopted by lovers of the genre. Uh, so I think, I think we're safe using that. Um, <clears throat> and uh, Corbucci died in 1990, but he made films uh, all the way up through the end there. Uh, so there's there's a lot of interesting things. The Great Silence uh, is another one. He did it two years later after this. I think they're all worth checking out if you like this film. But let's get to the plot. The plot of the original Django is that Django, played by Franco Nero, uh, is a former uh, Yankee soldier who is going close to the border of Mexico down south. So he's not super popular already uh, because he's wearing still wearing his... Um, his Yankee uniform pants, although they're quite shredded, but he's dragging a coffin behind him through the desert. No horse, just him dragging a coffin. Um, in the beginning, he comes across some uh, Mexican rebels of some kind. Uh, we don't really know who they are. They're, they're Mexicans, and they're tying up this woman and whipping her. And she is uh, Laura, Laura her name always throws me off. It's Loredana Musiak. Uh, and I probably, I'm guaranteed to be butchering that, but she's a very beautiful uh, pageant winning um, actress. She was in the Gladiator 7 from 1962, uh, No Way Out 1973, um, lots of things. She, she died in 2006 in Trieste and she is, I think she does a great job and we'll talk about her. She was also in Super Argo versus Diabolicus. So if anybody's into the Super Argo masked sort of comic book Italian films, uh, that 1966 outing has her, you will recognize her. She's being whipped uh, and all of a sudden the Mexican soldiers get shot down. One would think that it's Django who's done this since we just saw him arrive on the scene. Surprise, it is not. It is actually a group of uh, former Confederate soldiers on the other side who go over only to say, well, uh, we're going to kill you this way uh, or punish you this way. It's a lot better than getting whipped by Mexican soldiers. And we learn that she has history with this group as well. This is when Django shows up and decides to shoot them. And he's like, come with me. We'll go to town. You'll be safe with me. She just seems sort of like, I don't really know that I want to, but what am I going to do? They go to town. He's like, I need a room for her and food. They're like, no, we can't serve her. He's like, mm, think you can. And he goes directly to a prostitute because this whole town only has a brothel working at this point uh, and says like, give me your room key and gets her money, which she's very grateful for. And then uh, Maria is the name of the woman, goes up to sleep presumably in this room. Now, <clears throat> we don't know at this point what's happening, but the situation is that Maria has, she worked at the brothel and then she ran away from the major's soldiers, the former Confederate soldiers who were coming to town and went to the Mexican side. We don't know if she really went there or if she was captured or what the case is, but she probably went there and then they wouldn't let her leave. Uh, they were essentially keeping her because they liked her as a prostitute. And so she tried to escape, at which case that's why they whipped her. So she really has no friends in the world at this point. And she sort of clings, she doesn't even cling to Django, but she clearly sees him in a positive light. 
Um, they sleep together one night when she says that he uh, is the only person, regardless of why he did what he did, that made her feel like a real woman. And in this case, it's a cheesy line, but I think it's clear that she's not saying you make me feel sexually like a woman. You make me feel like a person who's worth investing time into. Um, and his response is, I'm glad I made you feel that way after he said, you know, essentially, well, I didn't do it really for any of these reasons, but so we think there's a romance. Well, turns out when the Mexican shoulder, uh, soldiers show up, because this town is the, or this brothel is the safe place. So, cause of course, both sides of this battle, the former Confederates who are still trying to oust anyone who isn't white and anyone who's Yankee and the Mexican group who want to go back to Mexico, but we learn they have enemies in Mexico too. So they're essentially uh, gangsters. <clears throat> These two groups both want a brothel. That's the one thing they can agree, agree on. So the brothel is neutral to ground. And when the major with his Confederates are, aren't there, then the Mexicans are there. The bartender sort of gives us a little bit of this exposition. Well, we find out after Django has arrived and he's put Maria in her room, uh, he shoots a couple of the major's guys and says, go bring all your rest, which are like 48 men. And the bartender's like, you got to go. Like, he's actually quite kind. He's like, you're going to get assault. We're all going to get killed because of this, number one. But you have a chance. Take Maria and go. So he clearly is he's kind of a good character um, for no real reason other than, I guess, it's the right thing to do. He's being kind. And Django says, no, I got all I need right here. So he drags his coffin out to the middle of town behind a tree, a fallen tree, which is a little odd that it's there, but it is a very muddy town. So who knows what's washed through. The soldiers show up and Django whips out of his coffin a Gatlin gun. And yes, this is actually time appropriate. They would be rare, but Gatlin guns were created uh, by Mr. Gatling in 1861. So the Civil War ended in 1865-ish. So this is clearly sometime recently after the Civil War. And uh, so a Gatling gun would, would be invented and potentially available, but not common. He mows down the entire group of people, but he leaves the major alive and the major flees. Well, <clears throat> we think this is great. He can now take Maria and go do whatever he wants. Well, not quite so. We find out that Django uh, had a love, the one love of his life, who was killed by the major. So the major is his ultimate enemy. We still don't know why he left him alive. Well, the Mexican soldiers come in and we find out that Django saved the Mexican soldiers, uh, commander's life. What we... And he says, hey, I can help you get back to Mexico, but we got to rob this Confederate stronghold nearby of their gold so you can afford to buy a couple more of these Gatling guns, which will help you uh, win in the battles to go back to Mexico. They're like, great. Uh, and he says, basically, the commander is like, well, you can have Maria because uh, she's making eyes at you and you're a friend of ours. And he says no, I want this woman instead, which of course is kind of a face crack moment because you really, it's playing out like this would be a romantic thing going on. And he looks like a douchebag and she is horrified. She's angry. She's not even horrified. She's angry. Uh, well, of course, what happens is, um, I say, of course, this is obvious. I don't think it's obvious, which is probably why this film is popular, is Django helps them get the gold. And then while they're reveling, he has this other woman, this other prostitute he's pulled, undress in front of a window to distract the soldiers outside so he can lower his casket into the room where they're storing the gold, 
uh, take out the Gatling gun, rig it to go off at the door when somebody opens it, and he loads the coffin with the gold, and then he smuggles the gold out. Well, sure enough, they come in, and the gun starts blowing people away through the door. He should goes through the horses, gets a carriage, loads the trunk in the back, and, uh, and then before he goes off, somebody points a gun at him, and it turns out that it is Maria. And she's like, I'm going with you. And he's like, okay, let's go. So they get in the cart, they go away, seem to make it scot-free. They got to the exact same place where Maria was being whipped, where they first met. At which point she's like, I, we can start a life together. He's like, I only had one love of my life and she's gone. I have something to do, which we can assume is kill the major, uh, before I can start a new life and bury my past in this coffin. So the goal is to start a new life, but he has to end this old one before he can go forward. He's like, I don't want you to come with me because you could get hurt, which is kind of telling to her clearly because she's like, okay, well, you do care about me then. That's what this is about. That's when the gun falls over and fires around and spooks the horse who jumps forward. And when he lurches forward, the casket falls into the ravine over which she was being whipped and into the quicksand. This is that oh shit moment where they constantly are putting Django and Maria up a tree and then throwing rocks at them, right? It's getting worse and worse and worse. Django goes in to the quicksand uh, and of course cannot get the casket out of the quicksand and he's now sinking. So Maria goes onto the bridge, grabs his hand, tries to pull him up, at which case she is shot by someone off screen. We see the Mexican soldiers have caught up with them. They drag out Django, leave Maria for dead and, um, then they break in it quite a it was quite a brutal scene to me uh because they're like we don't kill thieves even if they steal from friends we have a way of dealing with them well a soldier knocks Django down and smashes his hands repeatedly with uh the butt of a rifle and then the horses walk over his hands as they leave pretty he's, he's all bloodied up it's pretty brutal well cut back to town excuse me I pulled out my headphones, if anyone is watching the YouTube, with my, I talk with my hands, and when I talk with my hands this much, I knock out my headphones, because I don't have AirPods, because this podcast is not yet monetized. We want people to advertise with us that we appreciate, so reach out to us, Podcast at gmail.com. Back to the story. Uh, so Django's hands are broken, Maria's been shot. And uh, the Mexican soldiers are like, ah, ha, 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 we're really happy just because we did this thing. And they run afoul of a um, bottleneck in the canyon where the major soldiers are waiting and they're all slaughtered. So cut back to town, the uh, women have, proceed, have apparently left because the town is dead. The Mexican soldiers are leaving and the major, they don't wanna be around because of what just happened, I'm sure. They're gone. The innkeeper is locking up and gonna go out to face the world with a painting in one hand and a suitcase in the other. Well, that's when Django walks in the door with the wounded Maria and he's stumbling in. He says, can you take care of her? I think she'll be okay if you take care of her. He says, of course. And then he says, tell the major, I'll be waiting for him in the graveyard. Of course, Django's in bad shape. He can't use his hands. So you don't know what's gonna happen. Um, the major shows up. Maria's on the fainting couch facing away from the door so we can't see her. And then the major uh, is told where Django is and the major shoots the kindly innkeeper. Sad moment, Senator Roll is dead. 
goes to the um, graveyard, expects to just kill Django. And then we get this long scene where Django is really struggling to try and cock his pistol as he's, he's crouched behind a, a wooden cross with iron embellishments, I believe. And he's trying to do this and it seems impossible. And uh, right when you think he's gonna get shot, he's propped the pistol in the metal embellishment so he can pull the trigger with like the palm of one hand and pull the hammer down with the other palm so he's not using his fingers. And he shoots all six of the men or so and they fall down. And that's the moment where the film ends with him teetering off to go fetch Maria. So long way to describe this film, but I think that it's important because a reason that a lot of spaghetti Westerns are sort of forgotten uh, is because although they have a lot of violence, gunplay, womanizing, you know, women in, in these Western style bustiers and things, um, a lot of drinking, a lot of music and piano, although they have these things that are enticing, they often had incredibly straightforward derivative plots. The plot is very much a stranger walks into town or rides into town, uh, town's being hassled by gang, guy fights gang, kills gang, end of story. That's, that's almost every single one. It's actually almost every single Western in general, uh, except for uh, some, some, some real standouts. And this is one of those standouts. We don't know what Django's deal is. At first, we don't know what's in the coffin and why he keeps saying he's dragging his coffin around that's for him. And then he says there's a body in it. Well, it's not a body, it's a gun. Then we don't know why he's 180'd on Maria and is so cold to her in the middle. Um, and then we don't know why he is um, he's really doing anything until he gets the gold. And then we find out that, yes, he just wants her to be safe. He's not going to play it safe because he has to do this task. It's, it's that whole thing. Then we finally know what's happening. Um, but everyone, uh, the major, the, uh, the Mexican commander, and uh, Maria, we, and everyone in the movie, they don't know what Django's up to until the end of the film. And I found that really refreshing the first time I saw this movie. I also thought that this is one of the first movies I watched in a while where there wasn't a point where I really looked at my watch um, where I was seeing where we were in the film because I think it was fairly well paced. And I think it's like right over an hour and a half. It's like an hour and 31 minutes. The one time maybe that could have happened is when uh, the preacher who is of course on the Confederate side and a real scumbag and actually a little personal note Tad, did he look like Ethan to you, Mandy? Just a little bit. He had that sort of chin strap beard. I, okay. It was I, interesting. Thought, I, th I thought the chin strap was very interesting. Not that the chin strap didn't exist in the 1800s. Um, I, <laughs> it's, I, I didn't think about Ethan until, until you mentioned it. And I was like, hmm. Maybe we should get him that get up and uh, dress him up. Yeah, and see how so well he... this, is, this is something that is going to interest absolutely no one listening to this podcast. We know a guy who looked mildly like this gentleman. But point is, uh, there is no point to that story. But there's this preacher. He's a nasty guy. He's the one that first tells uh, the major that Django is in town. And uh, there's a scene where he's blaming the major sol soldiers getting killed and trouble coming to town, although clearly the town has lots of trouble already. Uh, not on Django, but on Maria, who he brought back um, because he's like, she's sinful, blah, 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 blah. And um, one of the prostitutes, the one that she was sharing a room with, is actually defending her 
and another one is uh, saying it is her fault, and they get in a mud fight. Um, there's no nudity in this film, really, <clears throat> that I noticed, but um, there is this, like, four-minute, maybe it's not even four minutes, three-minute scene of, like, six women being completely 100% caked in ground mud. Uh, it is it's an entertaining scene, but I think it was, instead of being a story moment, it was definitely a checking the box on, let's make sure viewers are watching, check. Um, it was so, so surreal watching a mud fight in a in a spaghetti western. It was it was out there, and there's uh, lots of the trimmings of the spaghetti western genre where it sort of broke away from the tame um, uh, American approach to westerns at the time, not even at the time, but especially before the ones that inspired this kind of film, uh, such as soldiers getting shot in the eye. Um, the effects are very uh, basic, so it's more blood on the face um, than any sort of actual like blood pack or anything uh, but it's still effective and it's a nice uh little like moment of oh uh that lots of other films just didn't bother to budget for you know what shows that that this was a product of its time speaking of product of their time nate mm. at the time this movie was released it was considered one of the most violent films yep. ever made mm -hmm. and now, it was banned in the united kingdom until 1993 and we just reviewed Django Unchained, which is ridiculously violent. And it just goes to show the difference in the time. That's right. Django Unchained has death by ballpin hammer, by dog. It has um, full frontal male nudity. Uh, you actually Someone got shot in the dick. This is crude, but you see Jamie Foxx's taint, uh, which is mm. uh, you don't do that, that. I can't think of any theater run American film that wasn't just limited theater run, but was full nationwide theater release where they did that. Um, of course, it's Jamie Foxx. He's a beautiful human being who's super fit. Um, like they, they didn't show, you know, me or John Candy hanging upside down. But, you know, yeah, you don't like Django was considered uh, vulgar. And it's really tame by today's standards. Would they play it on Nickelodeon during the day? No, absolutely not. Um, is it in any way going to get an R rating? I think you'd be pushing it if you were to give it an R rating these days because there's no nudity. Um, the implied sex isn't even, I mean, they don't even really touch before the sex scene. It's literally a fade to black. Um, and there's, there's certainly both meaner and more vulgar uh, Westerns that came later. But Django really was, I mean, this is before Bonnie and Clyde. Um, so we sort of broke the, the ratings board in the United States, but UK didn't like this movie. Lots of other places also didn't like this movie, except for the fact that everybody really liked this movie. So it became really, really popular. I mean, this is a movie, but I mean, the most violent thing I think was the guy who got his ear cut off and force fed it. That was yes. of, like, oh, that is. That it's is still not that violent. It's no, and that is the that is the pastor uh, who is a, not a nice person, and we certainly did not uh, did not do that. Now, I, I want to give a note. I just want to say there is a new Django film that is in pre production with Franco Nero. It's called Django Lives. Uh, it's by Christian Albert, and it's written by John Sales. I I think it's quite early pre production. I don't really think it's. Um, I don't think it's far in there, but it, it is the director is the director of Pandorum, which uh, I actually quite enjoyed, although it may not have been the most original. I enjoyed that film with Dennis Quaid, Ben Foster. So uh, very capable. I think it's going to be fascinating to see what that film is like. Um, there is also 
there is, although there were tons of unofficial sequels that really were unrelated films, there is a uh, official sequel to Django that was made uh, later um, it, with Franco Nero. And I believe it's Django Strikes Back, I think is, is the, uh, the name of that film. Um, but it was uh, 15 years later, is my guess. Um, so it's, it's a different film, but it is still totally worth it, uh, in my opinion. And I think while American audiences who aren't sort of Django buffs aren't going to recognize Franco Nero's name, he's been in a lot of American films. He was Julius in John Wick uh, 2. He was um, uh, in The Lost City of Z from the book. He's um, been in some, some high-ranking movies as well as lots of little movies throughout. So he's certainly still very active. And I got to say, when I first saw this movie when I was a teenager, I wanted to be Franco Nero. He has like this, his stubble is perfect. And he has these like shocking Paul Newman blue eyes. Um, and it, we can't not mention that he also was uh, Uncle Tobolino in Cars 2. So even kids know Franco Nero when, uh, even though they, they don't think they know Franco Nero. Um, so Mandy, had you seen this movie before? Uh, I'm, I'm going to hazard a no. I had not seen this before. What was um, your take a, on this movie? I don't know. I had like a feeling that Django Unchained came from somewhere because of uh, my knowledge and being a fan of Quentin Tarantino, but I'd never done the research and like gone out to see this. Um, I really loved it. I loved the parallels uh, or like the aspects that were taken from this and put into Django Unchained. Um, I really liked um, seeing uh this particular film as being like a very popular film at the time um i had seen the um the few dollars more like the dollars series um i grew up in a household that was a big fan of clint eastwood so i was familiar with those and this is similar but i i really like that you pointed out that it was a more complex storyline like while um the clint eastwood a few dollars more or dollars series is fun and it definitely follows that spaghetti western theme and formula. It did not have the complexity of this storyline. Um, also, I was delighted at the scene what you described with like the partying Mexicans and like Django's like diversion with the prostitute. But what I really was like just laughing hysterically at was him like dragging the coffin like over the balconies yes. and the roof and down the chimney using it as everything. a bridge across across yes. rooms at one point exactly um, i was dying i'm like i don't know if this is supposed to be funny or if he's supposed to be sneaky because they really weren't playing it up as funny but like it was yeah. so funny so uh at least to me it was just very very funny um and that was a delightful surprise like kind of in the middle like sort of where the uh the climax of like the action and the tension of the movie was happening. So. For sure, for sure. Tad, had you seen this one before? I had not, but I felt like I did because I am a huge fucking fan of um, some old Westerns and also Shaw Brothers productions because this yes. felt like yes. a Shaw Brothers production. The terrible dubbing, the camera, just that, that kind of, um, I don't know, a haze over the entire production that was a result of the old of, of the old filmography 
because 36 Chamber of Shaolin is one of my goddamn favorite films of all time. And this felt kind of like that. And also, God, I, I, I uh, witnessed basically what is the grandfather of Desperado and El Mariachi yep. because fuck, until I saw this, I didn't realize where some where Robert Rodriguez got some of his ideas from. And this, yeah, this exactly, incredibly influential. Of course, in Desperado, uh, Mariachi carries around a guitar case that has guns in it, and in this, it is uh, a coffin. Um, other high-profile fans of this movie are um, uh, the Tim Armstrong and Rancid. They, of course, wrote the song Django. Uh, Django. You drag your coffin around, you drag your coffin around, you drag your coffin around. So it's like there's, it's, it's, it's one of those that pops up across cultural um, divides often. And I think uh, it's the originality of the, of, the, of the story that really does it. Because like you said, Mandy, I cannot think of another Western where we watch our hero struggle. Like he, he essentially, it's, it's one of the few times too, he didn't have a horse for most of the movie. He has a horse uh, once. And it's the one that spooks and drops his gold in the, um, in the sand pit. He really only has, like, he drags this around all the time. He drags it around, he sits on it. He drags it around and ties it shut. He drags it around and empties it and fills it and then closes it again. Like, it's, it's a lot of coffin play <laughs> in this movie. Um, and I think that that's, uh, and also, of course, Django Unchained pulled many things from this movie. Uh, just tone but also those stints of um not i feel like the tension of not knowing what's going to happen uh because i did feel that django unchained was a very tense film uh, especially once you are so invested in django and broomhilda and dr schultz you, you're scared for them um also the uh the clan involvement this film um while they don't use the terms ku klux klan i don't know when that phrase was actually started um the major's men are said to be uh, uh, occult, essentially, religious zealots, and they wear hoods. They're red hoods, but they're very much um, modeled after uh, Ku Klux Klan hoods. And, uh, and they, of course, are uh, against the uh, freeing of the slaves, and they're against Mexican people. Um, it's also mentioned that Maria, part of her issue with why she sort of tries to leave one way or the other is she's a mixed race. Her, her mother was, or one of her parents was Caucasian and one was uh, Mexican. And so while she's very, she's very much a, a, a blonde Latina, uh, she is um, supposed to be of mixed race. And that's sort of used against her. So she is the permanent other. Django is sort of an other by choice, even though I'm sure the way that he would say it is I'm an other because I lost my love. And so now I'm just a wandering specter until I, you know, get revenge. She's uh, an outsider um, by birth. So it's sort of interesting that they drag them together. They don't heavily pull into that. There's a lot you could do, especially if this was done uh, contemporarily again. Um, I also, I like the fact that um, there's a reason that this movie ended in the graveyard because it's not it's not a higher message because so often um and i think this was one of the reasons one of the inspirations although certainly there have been gunfights in these westerns in graveyards before um but nothing is unintentional in this movie 
Uh, the script says, hey, he's going to a graveyard, not just because it's great to look at, not just because there's cover from crucifixes, but because he's like, I have to go there because that's one of the places where I can find something to rest my gun on. They can give me a level shot. Um, so it's, it's just, it feels much in the same way in Django Unchained, uh, the way he gets free uh, after he's been recaptured um, and, and Calvin has been killed and Dr. Schultz has been killed. He gets, he pulls out uh, his, what he was told to keep as his lucky wanted poster from the first bounty he got. Um, and he uses that to trick the slavers that are transporting him, one of which is Quentin Tarantino, uh, to, you know, get to get a gun so he can kill them and, and go get Broomhilda and get revenge. That's sort of that same intentional, smart plotting. There are no Chekhov's guns that are on the table in these films that are not uh, used later. Um, and so it's, it's satisfying as a viewer to see them. The other thing, I just want to mention some of the other names. The, the bartender is played by um, Angel Alvarez, who was an actor from uh, Madrid. Very well credited all the way up through the mid 80s. Um, just another one of those people in this film who are super able to carry a scene on their own. And because of that, they were cast in all sorts of films. Um, and the, the general... Uh, is played by Jose Badalo, who who passed away in 1985 at 69, and uh, he also was in a lot of films, uh, especially Spanish language, excuse me, Italian language films. He played Don Ricardo in the movie El Crack from 1981, which is one that I watched because I loved that title. So uh, he can carry a scene too. He definitely hams it up as a stereotypical Mexican soldier in this one. So, and that's another thing. There's definitely Mexican stereotypes in this film. But what I enjoyed about the play between the, the Mexican troops and the Confederate troops is um, no one's the good guy in this movie. Um, there's really only victims and victimizers. And uh, it's, it's Django and Maria who refuse to accept this and buck the trend. And it's, it's similar also then to Django Unchained when they constantly are talking about why didn't the slaves rise up? And you know what I mean? It just seems like, you know, uh, these, these white slaveholders asked that question in that movie and um, their answer is apparently that one of two things, either while they're born subservient, which is of course ridiculous, we know that's not true, or it's, it takes someone willing to just take the risk regardless of the chance that they're going to uh, suffer. And that's something I think that's the message that we all, we get from both these movies is, you know, it's, it's, it may not be easy, but doing what's right is, or what's just is, um, is the only way that you're going to change things. And so I think, you know, it's digging deep, but I think that that's there. And I like that in Django, um, initially we think, oh, the Mexican soldiers, because we see them whipping this woman are bad guys. And then the other guys show up and, oh, these white guys are bad guys too. And you get, and then you're like, oh, wait, but he's friends, Django's friends with the Mexicans. And you're like, oh, they're not very good either. And then these other guys who are, I mean, they're, they're racist Confederate pro-slavery monsters. They're not good. You're like, oh, all of the people who have weapons, except for Django, are not good. And even Django is trying his best to just do what's, what he wants. And he can't, uh, as, as evidenced by his, his, um, protection of Maria. So interesting take, interesting film. 
we're going to dive right into recommendations here. Tad, would you recommend Django 1966 to people and why? Absolutely. Um, this is this is during the golden age of the spaghetti western and the the rise of American westerns, and these movies are nuanced. Uh, they're also um, slow paced. So it does take a little bit of patience to get through them, but it's worth it in the end. And you will see a lot of uh, the, the, the clay that uh, people use to form later movies, much like my mention of uh, Desperado. Desperado, because that, that's, this is where a lot of inspiration comes from. I mean, Movies like, because I've mentioned them before, Six String Samurai and Logan, which was only, you know, in the past four or five years, all take inspiration from this era. And Django is a, a highly quotable movie. Um, I was actually surprised at how quotable this movie was, especially when he's like, uh, it's not like he, he said something flippant. And so he's like, what did you say? It's like, it's not important. And if I bothered you, will you accept my apology? He's very snarky. Yes. <laughs> he is so snarky throughout the entire movie. It's great. A lot of one line. It's a lot of one liners, surprisingly, for a, for a film of its era. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting to know, too, if you, if you watch the Italian version of this, um, there's at least one scene in that, or one part in that same scene, uh, which is when I believe the major first walks into the bar when Django has arrived to town um, that they added a lot. The Italian cut adds a line when Franco Nero is not actually speaking, they dubbed it over and it's another, and it's another snarky line. And, um, and it's not in the American dub because they were like, well, we're not going to dub in a line when his mouth's not moving. We're already having trouble <laughs> enough matching people's mouths. So uh, it was interesting, but yeah, I, I think that's a valid, valid thing and um i guess for me the pace is true the pacing actually was solid for me but only because not because there's action in the beginning because you're right there isn't there's actually a fair amount of inaction in the beginning it's because i consist it sort of works on the stereotype of westerns that already existed at this time that you're going to get the information right up front of what's happening and we don't we don't get it and it becomes sort of a mystery mandy would you recommend Django 1966 with Franco Nero to people and why? Definitely would. Um, it's a fun movie. Uh, it's probably one you haven't seen. I think it would be enjoyable for a lot of different audiences, uh, for those who are fans of the Western, the modern Western. Um, and honestly, like even just like the more modern films, uh, like Django and Chain that we just talked about at length. But also things like um, if you're into anime, like all of us gave the thumbs up on the video, um, like Trigun. I, th I, I actually found myself thinking about Trigun quite a few times um, while watching this film Django and kind of seeing like maybe they, there were some things that were taken from this period of very classic Western that were brought into this um, much more modern um, genre of storytelling in, um, in the anime. The specifically the Gatling gun scene because there's um, a character in Trigun um, who has a hidden Gatling gun that like brings it out uh, at a kind of very surprising time. Uh, and, yeah, and I was like, oh my gosh, like uh, the parallels and that is very cool. I also think yeah. like if you're a fan of Django Unchained, watching this and kind of like teasing apart um, the uh, inspirations that Tarantino had, like where they came from and like what characters might parallel other characters uh what pieces of the plot line and stuff like 
Dr. Schultz versus the Django from the original. And then Maria is like, I was thinking about her being kind of both um, Jamie Foxx's character, Django and Broomhilda kind of combined, but like Tarantino sort of pulled them apart so that you see Dr. Schultz like um, reacting to both aspects of the character that were in Maria, uh, both like the ethnic um, racism or racism portion of it, as well as the uh, woman in peril portion of her. Um, but yeah, anyway, so there's this very, very interesting um, in, especially in comparison to other pieces of film and media. I think those are good points. And I hadn't thought of that uh, seeing Brunhilde and Django in that way, because it is true. Maria is also a victim. She encounters racism. And yet she also, like like Harry Washington's character, Hildy, but then she also has agency and for and like plays her hand regardless. And we know she has several times. She hasn't just run away. She's she's she holds Django up at gunpoint, essentially, right? Like to to get out. So um it's it's definitely interesting. And I think the thread throughout all this is Django has a good plot and it's shot respectably there's some argument i mean sergio leone makes beautiful pictures with his movies with um the dollar series and, and once upon a time in the west things like that um whereas corbucci in django does a i think a good job but it's not the same like the 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 level of production value isn't there um we get a lot of shaky cam and like there's a, a fist fight scene where django which is actually a pretty cool scene where Django fights an angry um, uh, one of the Mexican soldiers who wants Maria uh, in, instead. And we get this great scene where they, they fight all across the bar and everyone's just watching. And then they grab a rifle and he fires one in the chamber and the, the blowback out of the, out of the chamber um, sort of sends the other guy back and blinded both of them really. But he lands on a pickaxe and it sticks out his back. And it's a good scene, but, and I actually enjoyed the way it was filmed but it was very, uh, it was a very risky way to film it because we get moving cam shots of the audio of the the onlookers, and we get tons of ultra close shaky cam of the fight itself, and it was a a little much. I think if it was in uh, Sergio Leone's hand, for example, it would have been um, a much more stable, uh, classy affair. If that can be said about a fist fight, we would have seen a lot more of it. Whereas this one. Um, they opted to go the low budget route, which is pick up the camera and move it. Although super heavy cameras at that time, but they did it. And uh, it, I think it paid off, but it does make for less precise, pretty work. Uh, I also think we can't mention uh, Spaghetti Westerns without, and Django without talking about um, the influence that uh, Spaghetti Westerns took from Akira Kurosawa movies, the samurai films, especially like Yojimbo on Seven Samurai. If we won't necessarily go into it here because there are other films that are, are even better examples. This was sort of a uh, considered a take on Yojimbo. But what's fascinating about that is that it really played both ways. Akura Kurosawa took inspiration from Western films uh, uh, in, in the US and then applied them to these samurai films. And then uh, those in Europe and the US saw his films and applied them to Westerns. It's really cool back and forth. And there's lots of reading you can do on that and, and videos and it's super interesting stuff. But this one is sort of a take on the lone soldier, the Yojimbo samurai uh, film and 
pastiche. So it's worth checking out. I would absolutely recommend Django to anyone who's interested in, in historical cinema um, and also just um, thriller action films. It's sort of a caper film. It's an action film. It's, it's sort of a thriller uh, and it's definitely a Western. It's a lot of different hats, um, but solidly a good Western. And for those of us who like you know, the blood meridian, a little bit of a grit with our, um, with our Westerns, you know, uh, it's like John Wayne films tend to be fairly clean. And then you get true grit, which is a fantastic film on its own. Um, but that it's, it's a little bit more sunny in its disposition, if that makes sense, than like Django, which is really sort of a bleak, even though it has a happy ending relatively, uh, for, for several people anyway, it's, uh, it's a gritty movie. Uh, it's not a, it's not an easy life. In, in the West here. And I think that it's really a fascinating film to watch. And I think it's entertaining and, and the payoff actually pays off unlike so many films. So give it a watch. Well, that is it for us here at Colton Classic Podcast. Playing us out as always is All About Evil by The Chud. I want to again, thank you all listeners across the board. I know I'm using my radio voice now, but thank you guys so much for listening and making Colton Classic Podcast grow every week. And, uh, Send us your recommendations, suggestions, movies you'd like to hear us talk about, genres. Reach out to us at cultandclassicpodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at cultandclassicpodcast or on Facebook slash cultandclassicpodcast. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to Cult and Classic Podcast. This podcast is important to me. But what's more important are the rights, privileges, and freedom from violence of everyone in this country and in this world. And that means supporting Black Lives Matter. If you'd like to make a donation, please go ahead and visit coltonclassicpodcast.com where we have a list of places you can donate and help out. And please stay safe.